Today's reading is 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, 1a. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of the Lord. So our series this fall is taking us to some of the great characters and great stories in the Old Testament. And so we've you know, started with creation, and, and we've gotten to meet Abraham and Isaac. We've gotten to meet Jacob and Esau. 
Uh, Moses at the burning bush and then in the wilderness with manna. And so all of these stories are teaching us about what it means to be God's people and about um, the God of Israel. And this week we get to meet Eli and especially Samuel. So here's where we are in the stories of God's people. So uh, last week it was wandering in the wilderness. Well, that is long behind us. So uh, Moses' successor, Joshua, had successfully led the people of God to inhabit the promised land, and each of the tribes had settled in their own respective territory. And during those years, it was a a time where uh, the people of Israel were, were a loose confederation of tribes. There was no centralized military or political leadership. It was the period that was known as Judges, which is captured in in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And so in the period of Judges, uh, the people only came together when there was an occasional crisis that would cause a charismatic leader to be called forth and to rise up and to rally the people for some common cause against a common enemy. But these were also the days, and we hear this refrain again and again in Judges, these were the days when there was no king in Israel And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it was this period of of really chaos, kind of anarchy, moral anarchy, spiritual anarchy, that the book of Judges ends on this very dark note. Uh, The tribe of Benjamin, so one of the 12 tribes of Israel, was nearly wiped out by, by their fellow Israelites because of this unspeakable sexual crime that they had perpetrated. And so they were almost destroyed. And then in turn, the Benjaminites, they, they were shunned by all the other tribes. They wouldn't, the other tribes wouldn't do any intermarriage with the Benjaminites. So the Benjaminites, their solution was to kidnap women who went to worship at Shiloh. And it ends with these words, there was no king in those days and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this was the world into which Samuel was born. Chaos. Corruption, concupiscence, to use an old word. And even worse, these same forces that were loose in the tribes had found their way into the religious life of Israel. Into the, we could call it the temple, but it was really the tabernacle when it was a a moving, sorry, a, a movable tent where people could worship. But it had settled at Shiloh. And so Eli's two sons, we're using the temple and the sacrificial system uh, to meet their own needs. So when, when the meat was brought for the sacrifice, yes, the understanding was always that the priests would have a share in that. But they took for themselves the choicest cuts of meat so that they could roast it. And so they were stealing people's sacrifices to satisfy their own hunger. And there were women who served uh, uh, at the temple precincts. And these two sons were, were using these women to satisfy their carnal appetites. And we know far too well in our own age about the unholy alliance, the unholy things that happen when you combine greed and lust and religion. Now Samuel's mother, Hannah, she was barren, and she approached the tabernacle at Shiloh with a pure heart, though, praying that God would give her a child whom she would dedicate to the Lord's service. And her prayers were answered. And she fulfilled her vow, and she gave her son to be raised 
by Eli to serve in the Lord's house. And so little did she know, though, that, 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 that was this house of prayer had become a den of thieves. And so when we understand all of this context, right, all of the yucky things that had been happening, it makes sense that our passage begins with these words. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. How could it be otherwise? And that word vision, it's actually the same one that, that its most famous usage in the Old Testament comes in Proverbs, where it says in, in, in King James Version, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And leaders, church leaders especially, we love that verse because it feeds our own sense of ego, right? All right, people are perishing, things are struggling, the institutions we serve are struggling. Well, we can bring the vision. And then the place will flourish. That's the implication. But this interpretation of said verse was one of the pet peeves of my late great friend and mentor uh, who was parish associate in Ojai, uh, the Reverend Dr. Art Beals. I can hear him ranting about it right now. And it was one of, Art was a great ranter, a very kind man. But he could go on some great rants. And he said, that's not the translation. It's not about our vision. It's not talking about our vision, a human vision. This is, in Scripture, when it talks about vision, really what it's talking about is God's self-revelation, His disclosure of Himself. And so while I love the poetry of the King James Version, I mean, it's rarely surpassed by any of the other translations. The better translation is this, the one that, that Art gave me, which is confirmed in the sources, where there is an inadequate revelation of God, the people cast off restraint. Oh. And that's exactly what's happening in our passage. God has withheld his self-revelation, and what are the people doing? They have cast off all restraint. They're doing whatever it is they want to do. And the Hebrew narrative, one of its markers is that it, it's sparse in its details. It very rarely tells you what people are thinking. It doesn't always tell you what people are wearing. It doesn't tell you what the room looked like. I think this is one of the ways in which it's most different from our kind of modern novelistic form of prose that goes out of its way to almost describe every single detail of a situation. You know, next time you're reading a novel, notice how much space is taken up describing things versus kind of advancing the narrative. But biblical narrative is very sparse when it comes to these kind of details. And so when it does offer them, it, 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 it's begging our attention. It's saying, notice what's happening here. And so in the beginning of our passage, we get a couple of extremely intriguing and interesting details. It says this, Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim, and this night the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And so the symbolism that we're dealing with here, it's almost impossible to miss. The Lord is rarely speaking. There's not revelation happening. And, and so the spiritual condition of the people is grim, but it's not hopeless. But it's grim. Sight and the light of the people are fading. And so the question then is, what is God going to do in this kind of a situation, this kind of a dire situation? How will he keep the light of faith burning in the face of so much darkness? And the answer to that question, surprisingly, is Samuel. He is the answer to Hannah's prayers, and Hannah's name means grace. 
And so Grace's prayers, the prayers of Grace are answered by a child whose name means the name of God or, or God hears, God listens. And Samuel is one of these kind of glue figures in the Bible. He, 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 he holds things together as it trans- transitions from one era to another era. He bridges the, the era of what came before with what comes next. So it's Samuel who leads the people from an era when God rarely speaks and there's not a lot of revelation to one where God speaks again. It says at the end that his word went to all of Israel. He, he transitions from a, a period of chaos to the kingdom, which brings its own chaos with it. From an era that's dominated by, by the priestly class like Eli to one where, where the prophets hold sway. From anarchy to monarchy, from this loose confederation of tribes to a united people under David. Samuel does it all. He, he's a prophet. He's the last judge. He's a military leader. He's a kingmaker. He is the glue guy in the Old Testament. But before all, he was any of those things. He was a prayer on Hannah's lips. And he was an innocent young boy serving in a place marred by corruption. And so in order for Samuel to become who God needed him to be, to be this, this glue figure, this transitional figure, this transformational figure, he needed an education. He needed to learn. And so we're going to join him in his education this morning and see how he learned to listen, how he learned to speak, and how he learned to trust. So first, how he learns to listen. It's not the first time in our series this fall. I think one of the themes that ties these scriptures together is God speaking someone's name and saying it twice. So at the moment of near sacrifice in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham. And when there's the burning bush, Moses, Moses. And here we get Samuel, Samuel in the Lord's house at Shiloh. And so when God says your name twice, he wants to get your attention because something extremely important is about to be revealed to you. And there's debate in the literature about whether or not should we call this Samuel's call story. It's not that interesting of a debate, but I think it gets at something because it's similar to and it's different from other call stories. But, but this whole notion of a call story, um, it's easy for us to misunderstand it in our day and age, what it means to be called by God. Because for us, a calling is something that we choose to answer or not. You know, who have you answered the call? We're familiar with that language. Or we think of a calling, we think it about something uh, where we find sort of self-actualization and fulfillment in doing our job. But that's not what a biblical call is. One of the commentators says, you know, regardless of whether you call this a, a call story or not, says that what's happening here and what's happening in Scripture when God calls someone, it's, it's not a calling, it's a summoning. And there's a big difference. A call, you can sort of answer or not. But a summons is like, you know, get over here. And Samuel understands this as a summons because he gets up and three times he thinks it's his boss telling him, hey, come here, I need you. But what he doesn't understand yet, and the text tells us because he didn't know the Lord, was the identity of his boss. He thought it was Eli. He doesn't understand that it's God, that God is the one summoning him to do a job. And what we see in Samuel's learning to listen what we can learn from it is that an essential aspect of learning to listen is, is proximity. Look at where Samuel is. He's in the house of the Lord, uh, the tabernacle. He, he's near, it tells us, the text tells us, he's near the ark of God. And he's close to Eli the priest. 
So we learn to listen when we place ourselves in proximity to holy people, holy places, and holy things. Now, such proximity, being close to those things, is, of course, no guarantee that God will reveal himself to us. God is always free to reveal himself however he chooses. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth famously said, God may speak to us through Russian communism, a flute concerto, a blossoming shrub, or a dead dog. We do well to listen to him if he really does. And then he goes on to say, but that's not how it usually works. Theology speaks of the ordinary means of grace word, sacrament, prayer. And we would do well to attend to the ordinary before concerning ourselves with the extraordinary. So learning to listen means learning to tend to the ordinary things. Yes, God can speak to us anywhere using any person, any means he so chooses, but he usually does so in those places and by those means and through those people he has set apart for himself. That's what we mean by holy. You know, Eli was not particular holy in any colloquial sense of the term. He was not some man of great spiritual fervor or high moral character. In fact, the more we learn about Eli, it seems that he was remarkably unholy. But he was a man set apart by God in order to serve God in the tabernacle. And such peoples and such venues are the avenues through which God speaks to us normally in spite of the character of the speaker. And that's good news. Because how many of us would ever hear from God if, if the character of the person speaking to us about the things of God ha- had, had to meet the standard that we apply and ascribe to holiness? And so learning to listen then is about placing ourselves in proximity to those people, those places, those things, those nouns God has set apart for his purposes. So it's proximity. But also, it's about seeking guidance from those who've been there before, who can teach us about the art of listening to God, the art of discerning the voice of God in the midst of the cacophony of other voices that are out there clamoring for our attention. Eli, for all of his many faults, is Samuel's mentor in this way. He helps him. Three times God calls. Three times Samuel thinks it's Eli. I mean, it's comical in its repetition, right? Like, doesn't he get the point yet? But the third time, after the third time, Eli perceives this is the Lord calling Samuel. And so he tells Samuel what he needs to do if the Lord calls out to him again. He is to say, speak, Lord, for your servant here. Is basically he's supposed to say, I'm listening. That was, that was Frazier, right? Wasn't that his, his, his catchphrase? I'm listening which we won't get into Fraser, but I think it holds up upon further watching. But I'm listening. That was, that was Samuel's posture. And so learning to listen, yes, it's about proximity to the things of God and the people of God, but it's also about being in a community where we can have these kind of spiritual fathers and mothers and mentors and friends who can teach us how to listen to what it is God is saying. And Samuel didn't know God yet, and this is a remarkable thing. Because here he was, this child who had this very pious mother. I mean, Hannah is probably one of the paradigms of of faith in the Old Testament, what it means to trust and believe. So he has this very pious mother who's raised him and weaned him. And then he's been in the temple, right? He's, He's been in this very holy place, this place dedicated to the Lord for his whole life to this point. So he knew, he must have known about God. But there's always that distinction. He didn't 
know God. But he was listening. He was ready. And he was uh, able to learn from someone who did. And one of the great gifts of growing up in the church at its best are all the spiritual fathers, mothers, friends, and mentors that we are provided with. And I know I've been blessed with in my life who have taught me to listen to God. My own parents, I think, in my earliest years, I, I think about being, you know, at Wednesday night programming and, and having Margie Busalis, you know, teach me about heaven. My youth director, Casey Satterback. My camp counselor, Mike Inveen. Brandon Schur, Darby McDonald, uh, the aforementioned Art Beals, Keith Myers, just to name a few. These are people who help me listen to what God has to say. And so learning to listen, it, it, it's about proximity and it's about community. But next in Samuel's education is learning to speak. And if, if it were up to me and I was sort of like chopping this reading up this morning on, on how I could leave it on a positive note, it, it says, you know, I would have stopped in verse 11 where the Lord, you know, Samuel says, I'm here, I'm listening. And then God speaks and says, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Well, that sounds good. Wow, you're going to tell me something awesome. That sounds amazing. Uh, but in the Hebrew idiom, I'm going to tell you something that's going to make your words, uh, that will make your ears tingle, is akin to saying, I'm going to tell you something that's going to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Like, this is not, this ain't, it ain't going to be good news, is what it's going to be. It's going to be difficult news, hard news. And the revelation that God gives to Samuel is that he's going to punish the house of Eli because of the religious corruption of his sons that, that Eli has either been unable or unwilling to curb. So it's not exactly the most positive or hopeful message that Samuel's given. And so for Samuel, learning to be a prophet, yes, it means first learning to listen, but then it also means that he is going to have to learn to speak the hard truths. And the next morning, we're told that Samuel goes about his regular business. He's opening the doors to the house of the Lord. And, and, and we can just imagine him avoiding, you know, making eye contact with Eli because he doesn't want to say what he's just heard. And he knows what he's going to tell Eli isn't going to make Eli happy. In fact, it's going to hurt Eli. And I mean, in, in some sense, this isn't exactly news, actually. 1 Samuel 2 ends with some uh, anonymous man of God, another prophetic figure, shows up and in excruciating detail tells Eli all the bad things that are going to happen to him and his sons. And it really paints a bleak picture for him. And, and so what Samuel has to say is actually much less detailed, but it confirms what's already been said. And, and it didn't make it any easier for Samuel. And so what we can learn for, from Samuel is that being summoned by God means learning to have the hard conversation, to speak the truth that someone probably already knows, but you don't want to say and they probably don't want to hear. And I don't think I stand alone when I say I'm not a fan of the hard conversation. I like good news, not bad news. I like to talk about the gospel, not the law. I like to talk about grace and not about sin. And I was talking to someone recently, I can't remember exactly who, so if it's you and I'm not crediting you, I'm sorry. We'll remedy that next week. But they were saying, you know, they were just talking about the, the, the importance of embracing the hard 15 minutes, right? The hard 15-minute conversation. 
you know, which the principle being like, basically, yeah, it's better to just go in. You can avoid something forever, but just, it's usually just 15 minutes. It's a hard conversation. And afterwards, you feel better because you unburned yourself. You've not avoided something. And at the very least, you have clarity. Cowardice is easier, but it's costlier. You know, in this uh, physician heal thyself in this instance. You know, I was the guy who wanted the girl to break up with him so I could not be the bad guy, right? Like, that was always my preferred posture. Just, if you're kind of mean enough, you can get dumped, and then you're not the bad person. That's a, not the most noble approach to life. But there it is. And um, this fellow, Derek Kidner, he's a, a really wonderful Old Testament commentator. He, he says that what Samuel summons here, what it captures is really the tension of the prophet. That he must not refrain from speaking the truth. He can't avoid it. But he recoils at the word of judgment. He takes no joy in having to deliver this news. There's nothing scintillating or fulfilling. There's no schadenfreude in him. It's hard. And you know, the truth is that, that sometimes ministry can just feel like it's one hard conversation after another. That's why one of my favorite definitions of leadership, which I will repeat over and over again, is leadership is disappointing people at the rate they can accept. Who can bear such a burden as that? But note here how Eli responds. Not with anger, not with sorrow, not with indignation. Some would say it's resignation, but I don't think that. I think it's faith. It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So we have learning to listen, learning to speak, but now we have the last thing, which Eli, I think, models learning to trust. And so along with Samuel, we learn to trust the Lord. And toward the end of our passage, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And I love that phrase, let none of his words fall to the ground. And normally, I like to take this application point and make it as sort of broad as possible, show how it applies to to all people and and all Christians. But I, I think this is an especially pertinent point for those of us who are called to the ministry of preaching and teaching. Because we're, you know, in many ways we're an advantage when it, when it comes to the way things were in the days before Samuel. And God's word was rare and, and God's self-revelation was rare. You know, with the, really with the inauguration of the prophetic ministry with Samuel, God continues to speak to his people through his chosen messengers over the course of the century so that no matter how bleak things get, there's still the word of the Lord. Kidner says again, it, it's a sign of God's grace when God's word has free course among God's people. It's something that we cannot take for granted. And as someone who's been called by God to, to speak his word to a particular community, it's, it's this sacred obligation to believe that God could have as much faith in a person like me to entrust that to me, but also requires an incredible act of faith on your behalf. To believe that my words or Matt's words or whoever is speaking here's words, imperfect as they are, are by God's grace and God's spirit, God's word. All of this is an act of faith, of trusting and praying and believing that, that God is not going to let his words fall to the ground. My words, you know, can be splattered everywhere, all over here. But God is not going to let his words fall to the ground. This is a great act of faith. Trusting that God will use 
these words of, of, of mine and these words of others to accomplish his purpose, that they will get where they need to go, and that God will have them do what he needs them to do. It's remarkable. But Jesus says in John's gospel, he says, you know, the word of God, it will not be broken. It's unbreakable. What a great promise. And Isaiah announces, you know, speaking the word of the Lord, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and Matt, that snow from heaven is coming very soon, and do not, do not spurn the gifts of the Lord as they come here in Minnesota. Oh, I can't wait for that snow to come down from heaven. They do not return, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which it was sent. In other words, God is not going to let his word fall to the ground. And so in the end, we trust that, that God is still speaking to convict and convert to condemn and to console, to build up and to tear down. And so the question for us is, are we willing to listen to what he has to say? Are we willing to speak when he gives us a word? And are we willing to, are we willing to trust that that word is never going to fail us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.